Ladies and gentlemen, before we start the show today, I wanted to let you know we have an exciting opportunity for you. Dun, 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 dun. We are hiring. Yes, That's right. For the first time in several <laughs> months, maybe even over a year, we are adding someone to our team. This is a really cool job. It's an opportunity to put your hands on the wheel of a growing business to work directly with me and the boss man and our team and work with some of the best customers in the world. We'd love to find somebody from the podcast audience itself. So if you have questions about the job, you want to read more about it, if you want to apply to come work with us, we'd love to hear from you. All the details are posted at tropicalmba.com and do act fast the job opportunity won't be open for too much longer. Dan, I remember way back in the day reading job descriptions, hopefully ours rings as some of them that I did when I was younger, and just reading these job descriptions being like, wow, this is a way that I can change my life. This is a way that we can get off our air mattresses (laughs) and we can spring into action and everything's going to be okay going forward. We can spring for springs. (laughs) (laughs) So this might be the opportunity for you. Go buy Tropical MBA and check it out. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, yo, happy Thursday morning. It's a TMBA podcast. This is the show where we believe building a business is a fine way to create more personal freedom for you and your family. Speaking of family, I got the boss man on the phone over here. What are you so pumped up about, man? You sound real excited. I'm excited because we're going to talk about two of my favorite things today. Number one, we're going to talk about cycling. Number two, though, we're going to talk about business and specifically event-based business. First off, There's almost no business that can't benefit from events, a sense of community, bringing your customers together. So there's some sort of global resonance here. But more specifically, I've been thinking a lot about events lately and event-based businesses because I've become a customer of a few of these things lately. And now let me give you some examples. Iron Man, Tough Mudder, Spartan Race, and today's guest, one of the co-founders of GFNY, which is essentially a bike race company. They put on these fantastic Gran Fondos, these traditional Italian Gran Fondos, which are competitive, closed road races. And they've created a brand that is now global, and they're licensing this brand to people from all around the world, from Bali to to Uruguay, South America, Mexico, Jerusalem, and and many others. And it all started in New York City in 2010. And you've done a couple of these, yeah? I've done a couple of these. I've become a a, a bit obsessed, you might say. My first Gran Fondo, I raced it in Girona, Spain, and I wrote like gazillions of words about it on our blog, which I'll link up to. But it wasn't quite the type of Gran Fondo that today's guest, Uli, creates. And I think part of the reason the Grand Fondo I went to, my first Grand Fondo had, say, a couple hundred attendees, and even just one of Uli's events has 5,000, you're going to hear about on today's show because they have a stronger perspective about what their brand means and what you're going to get when you come to any one of their global events. So even if you're not interested in cycling, I really believe that today's episode can give you some insight 
into community, into building successful events, and to building a strong brand that you can license out to others or build a franchise model around. Because if you look at Iron Man, boss man, I mean, I would love to look at the balance sheet. Are they making their money because of the ticket sales or are they making money because of the co-branding opportunities and licensing their brand out? I just want to say this is a little bit off topic, but I was in the airport yesterday coming to San Diego and this guy's wearing an Iron Brand outfit. It's just like he's kitted up. He's really, you know, he's probably 45, looks great, like he's in great shape. You know, he's got this Iron Man kit. And I see the guy, he drinks two Diet Pepsis and like two or three bags of chips, like straight up Lay's chips. And I'm like, whatever this guy is doing on the weekends, I need to do that so I can eat like that. Like, I want that life. You know what they say in the cycling community, right, boss man? What's that? You ride to eat and you eat to ride. (laughs) (laughs) But a little bit of a backstory on this whole idea of a Grand Fondo, because it is the specific Italian version of these, which started in the early 1970s. It literally means big race. They vary from country to country, but in the Italian version, these are events where you go to show your stuff, to go your fastest, to beat your friends, to be the best. And these are four to six to seven hour races, depending on how fast you go, and about a hundred and uh, sixty to 120 miles, depending on, on where these things are. And again, you can either take them competitively because they are closed roads if you're going to a GFNY event or just for fitness and fun, or just to eat your Lay's chips and Diet Coke all weekend. Mm. So today's guest is the co-founder of GFNY. You can find out more info at gfny.com. He founded the business with his wife, Lydia, and their first race was in New York City in 2010, and for which they closed the George Washington Bridge, and they do this every year. I was there this year, It is magical. It really is. I mean, you're there with 5,000 riders on the busiest bridge in the world overlooking the Hudson River, overlooking Manhattan. And they closed it down. That's pretty amazing. I thought only corrupt politicians had the power to do that. Today, you're going to hear the story of some entrepreneurial persistence. I'm so glad Uli took the time to come by and share his story. As a young man, he was an obsessive athlete, but ended up doing the right thing, going to school Coming out with a traditional profession, he was a lawyer and a banker, but in an oft-repeated theme of this show, there came a day when Uli decided that his day job just wasn't going to work for him anymore. I was not happy in what I did. It was not who I am. Being a lawyer, being, I would say, in in an office, in my cubicle, having to work Monday, Friday, 8 to 6 or whatever it was. I don't mind working on the weekends. I don't mind working more. But if the weather's nice outside, I want to be able to get on my bike. I don't want to be sitting in an office and, and, and just feeling miserable because of that. And it frustrated me that I didn't have the creativity or the, the push to see anything else that I could do. And really for many years actually. I was going to dig into the business a little bit, but I wanted to ask you just a question about cycling in general, because you've been all around the world. What are some surprisingly good places to ride a bike that aren't named Spain, France, or Italy? I have to disappoint you. (laughs) (laughs) This is where it's at. And I think for me, the key to a great cycling experience, a road cycling experience, is having small curvy roads. The most boring thing to me is 
a straight road. It can be super smooth. It can be in beautiful landscapes, something that, you know, many bigger countries like the US or Australia suffer from where it's very not as densely populated. There's no need for roads because there's only, you know, the next town is 10, 20, 30 miles away. So you don't have the roads. And I think for me, cycling is playing. I, I, I don't care about data. I don't have any computer on my bike. I love playing with the road and, you know, the changing landscape and the up and down of a road. And I think that's where it's at in Europe. You could add to these three, you, you mentioned any other Central European country, the advantage of Spain, Southern France, Italy is the weather. So you can no problem cycle year round. I grew up in Germany. The winter is quite hard to ride. So that's why I personally prefer Italy. And they also, what another part of I think what cycling makes fun is if the culture, the people there understand it. If they, they see a cyclist and they get what you do and you tell them, I do Grand Fondos and you, know, you don't have to explain to anyone, I just know it. Nonetheless, there are many countries around the world where cycling can be fun. <laughs> You're in Italy right now. Can you describe a little bit about your surroundings and why you've chosen to be there? I love Italy for, I must say, the cycling, the climate, the people, how they, how they live their life and how they understand cycling. I mean, we live and breathe cycling now, so it does kind of make sense to spend a lot of time in Italy. We don't live here full time. We have spent time between New York and Italy. But when I started racing in Germany when I was a junior and my late teenager, I always enjoyed the long distance, big loop races and not doing you know a criterium 1k loop 70 times or a 10k loop even and those are hard to find or were hard to find back in the days anywhere else but italy as soon as i discovered that in italy i was like 2021 20, i was like that's it that is the kind of bike racing i like where you don't know the course even of the race you're going to do and the course in itself is a challenge where you finish and you like relive the experience of what the course was like can you describe for the audience what is different about the Gran Fondo tradition in Italy as opposed to what the rest of the world thinks about that term? Well, Gran Fondo in Italy is basically like a running marathon that we know all over the world, which means at the front you have the people who race for the win, in the middle you have guys who try to place an age group or do a good time, and at the end you have people who try to finish within the cutoff time. So. It's really all levels. Gran Fondo nowadays has been perceived, especially in the U.S., as just bike touring, where you're not getting timed, you're only sections get timed. And that not, has nothing to do with what really Gran Fondo is about and what the Italians mean this to be. It's really at the front serious racing as well. You really feel like being part of a bigger thing with a lot of riders and closed roads and you know, our motto for GFNY is be a pro for a day, and that's what you can live in a true Gran Fondo. So if you end up in a Gran Fondo where you're not getting timed or where the food is at the center of the aid station, of the, of the whole race, the aid stations are the most important part, you're not doing a real Gran Fondo. It may still be a nice experience if you like that kind of thing. It just isn't a Gran Fondo. What happened 10, 8, 10 years ago is that the term Gran Fondo was, you know, perceived as sexy and exported in other countries and then presented as something that it's not because in the US closing roads is very very difficult and expensive because you need police at every single intersection in Europe you can use volunteers for that so it makes it hard to organize a Grand Fondo so you know people thought they're clever they just make it a bike tour called a Grand Fondo and just because it's a sexier name what got you guys thinking that this was worth doing my wife was, I met her through running in Central Park in the same running club. And then we got together and she was a triathlete at the time doing Ironman. And 
I was used to be a triathlete and I said, look, there's this cool thing called Grand Fondo in Italy. You should experience that. So I took her to Italy and showed it to her. And she's like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. We have to do that in New York. So we decided, okay, let's get going. Let's start. I was still at my job at, at UBS. She had just finished her MBA and started working on it. And we laid out a plan, what the course would be like, the government agencies that we would have to talk to to get the permit for it. And that's how we started. So you have to bring me back in history a little bit here because we've already stacked the deck against you. First off, you have a high paying, good job in New York. Second off, you have a whole different idea of what a Grand Fondo means than people in New York. And not only is closing roads hard in, in New York, but you're closing the George Washington Bridge and New York City roads and New Jersey roads. So take me back to like, what was the first inclination? It sounds like an insane endeavor. And that's where my wife came in, who's really good at, you know, getting the things she wants to have, get it done. So she was, you know, contacting Port Authority, who's, you know, in charge of the George Washington. Said, we want to close that for our bike race. And they laughed at her and hung up. And they laughed five more times when she called and hung up. And then they got really angry at her that she kept calling. And at some point they said, all right, we're going to do that. This is what it's going to cost. And if you pay, we're going to close it. The bill was like in the first year already like $75,000 just to close the bridge for a few hours from midnight to 9 a.m. in the morning. It's just a bridge, but there's a lot of people working there and just closing them. They have like 25 or 30 ramps to get on that bridge. And we just said, all right, we need 5,000 riders that pay us $200, which is a lot more than people would pay in Europe for a Grand Fondo. But it is what it is. If you want that in New York, everything's more expensive. So people are going to do that. So we just, let's do it. How did you think that you could sell enough tickets to pay to close the bridge? We thought, well, Grand Fondo is a big thing in Europe. And, you know, there's thousands of people doing it. And the New York City Marathon has 4,000 runners. And there would be probably 200,000 willing to run. There's a lottery. And no problem. We get 5,000 people. <laughs> and then we said, all right, if we, by February, if we don't have... Two and a half thousand, we're just going to cancel the whole thing. And, and I think in, in terms of a budget, it was really hard for us to make a budget because we've never organized anything like it. We're like, ah, it's an event. How difficult can it be? I've done it for 20 years. She's done it for 10 years all over the world as a participant. So you see a lot, you know, just have open eyes for what's going on. Still no idea exactly what's happened. So our first budget was completely off base. What were some of the things that you missed? I think we were surprised at the end, how cheap food was, you know, we were like, oh my God, we got the eight stations and post-race meal is going to be so expensive. That actually wasn't so much of a cost. That's not that big of a cost. While other things, whether it's staff or, you know, the permits, police were much more expensive than we could have imagined. It started at around, I want to say, that's now eight years ago, close to $500,000 for police road closures, which includes GWB. So for all the permit policing thing that, that the roads is closed was close to half a million the first year. And it's closer to 750000 now. So it's, it's a huge cost. It's by far the most expensive bike race in the world. But, you know, it's New York and we still make it happen with the amount of riders we have now, close to 5000 it pays for it. It's the entry fee is extremely high compared to other grand funders. I said that you have, we have to start at two hundred and we open registration a year out. And if you register on the weekend of the race, you pay three hundred sixty dollars. It's a lot of money. It's similar to the New York City Marathon, just because the costs are so high in New York City as they are nowhere else. I mean, we operate now races globally. We have some entry fees as low as thirty thirty five euro. Were you able to make money your first year? 
No, we're still waiting to make money on the, on the main <laughs> event. <laughs> but in the first year, I said, even if all my savings, all my retirement money that I put to the side being a banker would be spent on that, at, at least it was like a dream come true, tears at the start, so overwhelmed by the feeling to have that race and, you know, just roll with it. And, you know, first time, I think, in my professional life to have created something that I can actually see and feel instead of, you know, pushing some paper on basically being a contract lawyer in finance is, is a very dry thing. And all you do is basically making rich people richer. So it's not something that feels good. Creating a cycling event, see all these happy people was really good for me to, yeah, to see more meaning in, in what I do. This week's podcast is sponsored by ConvertKit. They make sophisticated email marketing simple. You can see how ConvertKit can help your business grow by trying out their software for free for 30 days. That offer is for TMBA listeners and it's at convertkit.com slash TMBA. Stop sending the same email blast to everyone on your list. ConvertKit makes it simple to set up intelligent automations that convert prospects into clients and customers into repeat buyers. It only takes three minutes to set up a sophisticated automation sequence. Again, don't send the same email to everyone on your list. And because you're a TMBA listener, you can check it out for free. Check out that offer. It's at convertkit.com slash TMBA for 30 days. See how ConvertKit can help simplify and grow your business. And a big thanks to ConvertKit for sponsoring the show. What did 7 a.m. feel like at the first race on the George Washington Bridge? Best day, best moment of my life, I would say. Really, like, I'm, I'm in the lead car. I see all the cyclists standing there. They were all wearing our jersey. They're, they're happy. They're ready to go. Gun goes off. We're starting. And I'm not lying. I have tears in my eyes. And I more or less still have those every year at the start. I mean, you know, all the people that sign up and we see everybody signing up. We always look at the names and we know a lot of people by name and they don't know we know them. And then you, you meet them, you see them. It's great. It's really cool. Was there a moment when it transitioned like, okay, that was amazing to this is what we do now. This is our lives. This is our business. What was that moment like? We were totally cool about it. I mean, I was, I just wanted to get out of the job and having something else. I was just like, I'm young enough. I, we were not married. I didn't have any kids. So like, what was the worst that could happen? Right. I like, I can always work at Starbucks or find some job at a bank. I was just optimistic. I was just saying, this is what I want to do now. And it's the right step. And it's time that I really do something I want to do. To quote you, you say, we never saw this as a way to make a lot of money. If I wanted to make a lot of money, I'd still be a lawyer. I can't recommend event promotion if you want to make a lot of money. Why is that true? Well, it's true for us, and I see it with other event organizers. I mean, sports events, I know a lot of colleagues who, who do that. And, you know, it's hard. The costs are high, especially nowadays for, for most events. There's a lot of competition. And, you know, some may be able at the end to sell what they created to a bigger company and make some money out of that. But that's never given us. I think we see a lot of people who fail at it. And it's an incredible amount of responsibility to have 5,000 people travel on over 100 miles you know, on race day, it's it's a lot of pressure that sits on us. We're sole owners, my wife and I. At the same time, you know, it's fulfilling. It's something we love. It doesn't feel like work. 
How important are the other revenue streams outside of tickets to the business or tickets really at the core of it? Like I'm looking at your shirt right now. I have one myself. It says Campagnolo at the top. I'm assuming they're paying you some money to have that positioning on your t-shirts and on your event. Yeah, they do. I think in participatory sports, non-professional sports, company sponsorship is still very a small part of the event. It really comes down to, you know, the rider paying the entry fee. I wish companies would understand, you know, that sport better. 80%, I would say, are entry fees. Let's call 10% sponsorship and maybe 10% on merchandise sales. It's, it's like a very rough number that is quite interestingly globally applying. You throw a, a small convention at your, your New York event. So that's part of the sponsorship package. So you could be a title sponsor, like be on the kit for the event. So you have different pricing levels for all that. Yeah, sure. I mean, we have the expo, which is two days before the race, basically as the packet pickup for the riders. The riders, we need a place where they can come and get their numbers, get their jersey. We have to rent a larger space in New York City and renting that larger space in New York City costs $60,000 for two days. So someone's got to pay for it, whether it's part of the sponsors that then have exposure there or we say, okay, we, we make an cycling expo and other companies that don't sponsor the event can exhibit there and kind of help us pay the rent. We're not making money of it. It helps pay the rent, more or less. I think at the point where we're able to say we only have sponsors and you know our global events also exhibiting there, we're getting there slowly, like that we don't have to have other companies and we can be more selective and more protective of our sponsors or ourselves. Our, we have our own cycling brand now, apparel brand, GFNY, so we don't have any other cycling brands exhibiting anymore at our expo. What are some of the surprising things that you guys didn't think of in advance that ultimately made GFNY viable as a business that could sustain you and your family? I don't think we over we were overthinking it, and we said we're two people. How, how much do we need? You know, we're working from our one bedroom apartment in New York. We have a small storage somewhere in Queens. We didn't need a lot, so it wasn't like oh my god, we need to make half a million every year to sustain the company. It was really basic. First year, just volunteers. Then the second year, we started hiring. But it's still core of the business is um, contractors. Contractors that could almost be employees from the you know kind of money we're spending on them, but they're still not because they want to do other things as well. And it gives us more flexibility because it's seasonal still to some extent. But now we have full-time employees. So this has changed. So we've been growing into this. And I think GFMI World having global this franchise having events globally has also changed our business quite a bit now in uli and lydia's business just like all of ours you got to be nimble enough to adapt to new opportunities but at the beginning they were just focused on that main stage that core event that iconic event in new york city but it soon became apparent that the appetite for what they were offering was much larger Well, what we first had is that our writer said, man, Gonfondo New York was an amazing experience. The day after said, but I can't wait another year to do another one of those. So I always said, no problem. Unfortunately, I can't really recommend anything in the US because, you know, those Gonfondos are not what really a Gonfondo is like. However, get on a plane, fly to Italy. There's several every week and just do any one of those and you'll have a great time. But what we saw is that for language barrier or, you know, just being unsure about how to go about it, people didn't do that. 
So we said, why not? And so we organized the GFNY in Italy. So we organized the Grand Fondo there. We love Italy. As soon as we announced it, someone from Cozumel called us. We love Cozumel. It's just an island near Mexico. And said, I want to do a GFNY here. And we're like, sure, let's do that. And, you know, that was three years ago. And, you know, 20 races later, here we are and having them all over the world. We kind of like got pushed into that. Never the idea it would be a franchise. So how do you make money from a franchise model like that? A typical franchise is you charge a fee. We charge the fee based on upon the entry fee, a certain percentage. And in return, we, we help the local organizer with global marketing, with how to set up an event if they're new to the business. Some are experienced event organized. They don't need that. But to make it a GFNY, so we're holding hands and helping them to get the event off the ground. Once the first year was successful, it becomes a little more autopilot for us so that in the second, third year, we have to help less. And the revenue that comes from the fees, which is not big, is really money that we don't have to work for very hard. So in the beginning, it's like, you know, you get, say, from a new event, that's a small event, you get ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, and you easily work for that money. Like, you spend hours and hours. We fly there on our cost. Sometimes we get paid for it, or we bring a staff member as well to make sure that the event is good, that, the, you know, our brand, it's, it's like our baby, so we don't want it to be represented badly. It's hard to imagine this happening without a strong brand like GFNY, like, from a customer perspective, I can understand why people wanted this, because when you try to find a Sportiva or a Fondo, everything is different. But I know I can trust GFNY. So I can go to your website and I can see 20 plus options of what I can do. That makes a lot of sense, I think, for the marketplace. Yeah, and, and that's the idea behind you. You're absolutely right, especially now that the term Grand Fondo has been so bastardized in many countries. So you hear a Grand Fondo X and you're like, well, great, I want to do that. And then you get disappointed because it's not in it what's on it, basically. And, you know, with GFNY, we have four or five things that are absolutely key to the event that we say, mass start, fully timed, um, you'll never have to stop. You either have fully closed roads or the right of way at every intersection. It's competitive, so, you know, every age groups and full results. And it's a good family experience. So also, you know, many people can't travel alone. The family is part of it and, and making it good for them as well. Those are the things that, like, you go to GFMI Brazil, you come to the expo, and ah, it's GFMI. You get that feeling. And it's, I think, for most riders, it's subconsciously, but we're working hard on, you know, giving that. That's our job for us to, to make sure with the franchisee that this gets done in the right way. What I personally felt was what a good look for America here, because you have people coming from all around the world, the police, the locals. It felt like a thousand people were on the same team, sort of protecting all of these riders. Goosebumps. <laughs> I didn't expect that. Yeah, I felt that way too. I was like, kind of, I was in the Peloton seeing, hearing Spanish and Italian and thinking like, this is my country and we're not a bike country. Yeah. And this aspect, how international our race is, like the last two years, we had 93 countries represented most international bike race in the world. That's something for me, I'm, I'm not from the US, I've lived around the world, I've traveled around the world, it's something I really enjoy to have these people from all over the world and coming, you know, and when Trump said, let's build a wall, then of course we have a lot of Mexican participants who are really upset about that, they emailed us, and like, we can't come back to New York, it's like, it's impossible, and then, you know, you talk to them, say, we love Mexico, we have three races in your country, and, you know, every year we're coming, and we look forward to coming to Mexico, and, you know, 
don't let someone's voice like that take away from your experience at GFMI. Look at GFMI, look at all the writers, where they come from. And what a great experience is where one person says, and I want to build a wall. It's a, you know, you got to look beyond that. And it brings out the great in sport as it was originally meant to be from, you know, the first modern Olympics to really be a peaceful event and bring people from all over the world together. And when I race, I don't get to race the one in New York, but I try to race all the other GFMYs and I'm in a group with five other riders. And I might be somewhere in the middle of Argentina at our GFMY Argentina and I don't speak Spanish, but I'm with these four or five guys in a group and when we ride together, we rotate the leads and it's just cycling. We understand each other as cyclists. I don't have to speak the language. And that's amazing. I'm curious, what do the Italians think of the foreigners coming in and, and doing a fondo on their turf? The vast majority of registrants on your Italian fondo were locals. Yeah, and it's the same, you know, in, in all the other countries. We didn't go there and put it on ourselves. We work with someone who lives there who is local. Because I feel that is key because what you say is the perception of is like there's these Americans or someone coming in and you know, they're thinking there's something better. They come to our country and put it on. And that's why we feel that franchising and having a local organizer is still very much key to the success of an event. That The locals are still core to every single one of the GFMYs. I would say 80% are from that country. And our idea is not mainly to say to, you know, our New York people, hey, now go travel the world, which is something that definitely not everybody can afford. No, it's, it's the contrary. It's saying... You live in Italy, you cannot experience GFY in New York for financial reasons or family or whatever. We're coming to you. We want to bring you a little bit of that GFY experience so you can have it there. And we had people who have done five GFYs, never raced in New York. And I'm cool with that. I love that. What are some of the challenges you guys face? Like what sucks about your job right now? It's a lot of politics, as you can imagine, closing roads. And then, you know, some residents say I was locked in for two hours. That's something I have very little patience for and I wouldn't mind not having to do, to go to meetings with politicians and you know, I have to explain to them and, and deal with that kind. I'm very sympathetic to that. I don't want to lock someone in and if a road doesn't have to be fully closed and it can still be safe for riders, I always am voting for not closing a road so a person can still, that who lives there can still do whatever they need to do on race day. But... You know, th those kind of dealings, it's something that, you know, maybe is not my, <laughs> what I naturally would be good at. And it's something we have to do. One of the things you're great at is defending cycling against dopers. <laughs> Just let me give a, an example so the audience can sort of understand. And then I want to hear a little bit about where your passion for this topic came from. There was a pro rider who had lots of pedigree and was a well-known rider, worked for a brand, wrote to you and essentially said, hey... I want to bring me and a bunch of my buddies. What kind of deal can you give me kind of thing? And your response to him was essentially, well, I'll quote you. You had your chance in bike racing. A stealing cashier at a bank would never work as a cashier again. A doctor misusing his license to sell drugs illegally would lose his license for good. You got caught cheating in bike racing, so we think you should not compete again. But we would certainly give you a new chance in your new role at the brand. So in other words, come and be a sponsor, come ride the ride, but we won't give you a timing chip. We won't let you participate in the race. Lots of stories like this about you, but where's the genesis of, of this? As an outsider, I don't know much about it. Yeah, I think, you know, one, I'm the kind of person for whom fairness is very important. And I think that's what sport lives from. It's like one of the few 
things in life, if not the only one, where it's very black and white what the rules are. And, you know, having been an athlete since I'm 16, a, a cyclist, and later for a short time a professional triathlete also, and, you know, seeing dopers around me, and, and not that I would say if no one else would dope, I would have been, you know, a superstar or something, but definitely been cheated out of, you know, some prize money and some top 10 positions was hard for me. And then at the time, at the moment that I am a race organizer myself, that's where I say, now I cannot not do doping controls like many don't do it and not be strict with it because I hated it as an athlete myself. If someone cuts the course, we wouldn't accept that. Why should we accept someone doping? Why should we give him a slap on the wrist if he's like, you know, take an EPO and say, well, you know, you said you had two year ban and now you can race again. Coming back to the example of a cashier at a bank, if it puts you know hundred dollars to the side, it's not never going to be a cashier at a bank again. I'm all for second chances in life, but in sports, there's just no way for that. I think you have that one chance. I think the threshold to take drugs is very high. You know, some people claim it's not so high. I think it's very high if you were an athlete, and if you get into that, then maybe competing is not for you. By threshold, very high, you mean. To take that step, being an athlete, training hard, competing, and then saying, I'm not good enough, I need to take drugs to be better, or you know, justifying it by everybody does it, it's not easy. For some people, it may be easy, but for, I think for the vast majority, it's not something you just do overnight. It takes a lot of thinking and like, do I really want to do this? Because you don't grow up as a teenager wanting to be someone who cheats, not in sports. That's not what most people want to do. They want to be true athletes and stand for what they want to train for it and be themselves and not cheat. So I think once you take that step, it's not something you're not tripping by accident on a needle and then, oh, okay, it's not bad. So I have some EPO in me. When the threshold is so high and you get into that, then you shouldn't have a second chance in sports. I'm just going to drop in here to say that given Uli's anti-doping stance, it probably won't surprise you to hear that they do carry out different types of drug testing at GFNY events. And a few years ago, a Colombian rider named Oscar Tovar was banned from competitive racing for two years after he gave a drug-positive urine sample during the 2015 GFNY. Well, he was not the first one. I mean, the first one was in the first year we were testing. In the second year, we already had two guys on EPO. Honestly, not surprised. I've been in that sport so long that <laughs> surprised maybe because I thought people know that we're going to test. And we do some out-of-competition testing that not everybody knows about. But these were in-competition tests positive for EPO. And disappointed? Yeah, of course disappointed because, you know, you, you celebrate. It was one of them was like an age group second place. So he's standing on the podium. You celebrate them. You give them a prize. A month later, it turns out they were actually dope. Yeah, it's not a great feeling. But I also know it's part of the sport. And, you know, catching someone is better than not testing anyone. From a marketing perspective, you certainly got a ton of respect from the cycling community. For From my perspective, I think there's a lot of people in your situation would have faced an ethical challenge at that moment because with the 2015 winner, here's the male overall, first place, top of the podium, champagne, in the news, you know, and then to have to go back and say, you know, the guy who won our event, he was a cheat. And you just came out strong that way. I mean, I think a lot of people may have asked themselves if it was worth it in your shoes. Sure. That was hard. And I think even, you know, if you're in terms of marketing material, all our videos were geared to that guy, at least towards the end. So finding material to make promotional videos or 
what are you going to do with a race video that's sitting there where the comments are, oh, dopa, 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 you know. That is the hard part, but the good part about our event, obviously, is it's not mainly about the guys who win. We have 5,000 riders at the start. It's about each and every one of them, and our motto, be a pro for a day, is not by accident. We mean that for every single one of them, and that means the same to the guy who takes nine hours to finish the race, who does the best he can be on that day. So we can say, yeah, the first guy was a cheater. That doesn't take anything away from you know, the experience and f- of all the others. Well, I'll tell you my experience. It's interesting when you have that organizing principle because at the first rest stop, I, of course, didn't take any water because I'm a badass. But at the second one, I was thinking, you know what? I might take a look at some water. And a volunteer handed me a bottle and I didn't lose any speed. I kept staying in the peloton i grabbed a bottle and at that moment i felt like a slow pro (laughs) (laughs) great yeah the the concept of handing bottles that of course is part of what we mean by be a pro for a day that i would say 70 percent, 60 percent of the peloton they they stop at most aid stations they don't need that but you know for the guys at the front they for sure they don't want to stop they can't stop they're in a group say if i stop i lose the group so you know it's 160 kilometers 100 miles on a warm day, you have two bottles on your bike, that's not enough. I've done those races and many races, they don't hand bottles. And, you know, maybe you can talk in a group, let's all stop for 30 seconds and refill. And sometimes that works. And I've been dropped from many groups where, you know, the other riders had family, friends standing at the side of the road, handing in bottles. And I was flying in from abroad, I had no one and I had to stop. There's a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this podcast that aren't endurance athletes, they're not cyclists, but maybe they're looking for a change in their life. What's your advice to people that are thinking about getting into cycling? Nowadays, when you see cycling in the the news or how it's talked about, it's coming off at, some people call it the new golf, and there's this threshold of you have to buy a a $10,000 carbon bike and you have to you have to wear, you know, the, the full kit and you have to look like a pro. And I would just say get on a bike. It doesn't even have to be a road bike, a mountain bike, and go ride five miles, go ride 10 miles and see how if you enjoy it. And, you know, don't give up after the first time. Try it. I, you know, usually say four to six weeks is what it takes for a person to find out if you like it. And if you don't, then, you know, maybe cycling is not for you. And if I think if you feel after three, four, five weeks, it's, it's a really cool thing, ride longer, maybe start looking for a thousand dollar bike and find a local club. They can help you to, you know, sit properly on that bike. And, and so you get into it and don't get intimidated by people who've done it for a long time or think they know everything. You know, it's pretty basic. It's cycling. You know, most people have been cycling when they were kids. So you know, get out any bike off the garage you have and go riding. What my dad always said is the perfect speed. If you drive, if you're on a motorbike or in a car, it's too fast for our brains to process. And if you're a hiker, even if you do long distance, it's very slow. Change in nature, change in, you know, in landscape is very slow when you're hiking. Cycling is the perfect speed. When you get into riding 20, 30, 40, 50 miles, what you can see there, what you can experience is really fascinating. It's a lot of fun. Getting into fitness of cycling through being a bike tour, being experienced on a bike is the better way than getting into it by saying, I have to do an hour, I have to burn, you know, 800 calories. Don't be too, too much about the data. That would be me personally. I, I like the more playful, childish approach to cycling. I've had my own version of that, the glory of cycling about 
just seeing the world. Like I've been on so many adventures. In fact, I think it's cut down on my airline bills because I can have an adventure in my own city every weekend. Totally. And even, you know, bad weather can be a really lasting experience. Maybe not when you're in it, when you're soaking wet and you're cold and you're freezing and like, how am I going to get home now? <laughs> but those are the lasting memories. This is what really, I think, what is so cool about cycling that you can, unless it's like ice on the road, you can do it year round. I wouldn't use this phone call if I weren't to get some free athletic coaching out of it. So this year at the GFNY World Championships, I finished 349th. Very good. With a time of five hours and 38 minutes. It was my first time in the event. Okay. What would you suggest would be a challenging but not silly goal for me for next year if I say this is going to be the event that I focus on. I'm going to put my energy into doing my best at this event. Well, first I would ask you, how did you feel during the event? Was it like a very even effort where you were smart at the beginning? Did you finish strong? Or is it the like 80% of all riders I know they're, they think their mountain is halfway <laughs> and then they suffer through that second half? First, I would have to ask, how did you go through the race? I think at the beginning... I went too hard. I did exactly what you said. And I wanted to be up at the front and see what that experience was like for a little while. And then lost a lot of positioning on Bear Mountain and then started to cramp, worked my way through the cramps and finished really strong. I don't think I knew how to plan my effort. It's a very challenging course because the second part is an absolute backbreaker. Yeah. And I think many of the events that are rewarding and challenging are the ones that you do not figure out the first time you do them. I think that is what this course in New York really makes it attractive. You need two, three, four attempts at it to really understand how to ride it. Because, you know, you can't go too slow at the beginning because it's a lot of flat riding in the beginning. And if you have groups with slow riders, you're not benefiting from that draft that you could have if you're further ahead. Yep. It's really hard to time that. I guess if you do the similar training, stay healthy and are as healthy and fit at the start as you were in the past, what you could do is maybe hang a little bit back at the beginning, but use those groups to Bear Mountain, pace yourself very well up Bear Mountain, let everybody do whatever they do, and then focus on those hills after Bear Mountain to get over them nicely. But then once you're over those hills, it's not done. Then you need to be looking for a group that gets you home and work with them. And as soon as you hit the last 10 miles, you're on your own. You have to just get it done. I'm looking forward to it. It was extremely challenging. So final question, which might be a challenging one as well, which is if you could be a consultant to your earlier self, maybe go back to yourself. When you were in your banking career and you were starting to feel that sense of dissatisfaction, what sort of advice would you give to your younger self about business and about career? I think even in hindsight, the career that I did, I benefited from that. You know, I, I still feel like having that corporate experience, being in a cubicle, taught me a lot. Taught me not only what I don't want to do, but also, you know, working with other people that you're forced to work with. Working in an international scenario really helped me. And, you know, I'm basically my own lawyer now in the business. So I, I definitely benefit from that, too. There's still so much that I learn right now and maybe either too naive or too arrogant about a lot of things. I think we both have quite the training and education behind us that we feel like, ah, we know how to get this done. And that in hindsight, it's really like, well, maybe you should have talked to someone who knows better, who has the experience. Maybe that applies to life in general. <laughs> I don't know. On the other hand, you could say it's good that you bring some you know, more naive approach to things 
that you're more open-minded, that you're happy to jump into something that if you would know the full story, you wouldn't do. Do you guys talk about the ambitions? What's the future for your business? Yeah, definitely. We talk about it. We really enjoy what we do. Um, we want to bring more GFNYs around the world. So no one in the world is far from a GFNY. So anybody can do one. We're not zero entrepreneurs who always say we want five years and we sell and we do something else, which I admire if people can do that. But I think this is really so much my passion and knowledge that I don't have anything that I could do like that. And I, I see many entrepreneurs, they work hard, they have a passionate project, get the luck to it like we do too. I feel like 50% of what we do is luck, 50% is hard work and knowledge. If it's successful, if you can sell that business, you go into something new, you think you have the magic formula and then you do project after project, it doesn't work because you don't have that. It was just a combination of it together that brought that success. So I would always have to respect and say, well, maybe what you do right now works because you got lucky, you got pushed right place, right time, met my wife, we two work together well. And this way it worked out. So I'm, I mean, I have other ideas of things that I would love to do, other projects. But at the same time, I'm cautious. I'm like, you know, how would this work? How can I think it through better in the beginning if this would really be something feasible? Or would I really enjoy doing this for five, ten years? Or is it a great idea now and a year down the road? You're like, ah, maybe it's not such a fascinating project as it seemed to be. Well, good luck. I hope you guys achieve your goal. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you to Uli for stopping by and sharing the story of GFNY. How much more fun can it get? I mean, hanging out in Italy, having a global brand where they can pick and choose which of their events. Like, I'll go to the Bali event. I'll go to the Mexico City event. I'll go to the New York event. It's pretty cool stuff. What resonates with me about this story is that they just had a little bit of a bone to pick with what other race organizers were doing. And they wanted to do something more authentic you know, more fresh with a strong perspective. I can tell you a little bit of a, a backstory, inside story, if you want to. Yeah. The first GFNY event that I ever did was a couple years ago in Barcelona, actually. I've done a handful now. And I remember doing it, and the race progression had to stop a few times because they were doing it in high traffic areas. And I remember emailing Uli, who I didn't know at the time. And I said, hey, are you going to come back to Barcelona? I loved it, you know. And he's like, oh, no, we aren't coming back. Because those race organizers that we partnered with there, they like did our brand wrong. And like, that's not how we roll. That's not up to our standards. Forget about it. Hmm. And it's crazy because like from a business perspective, you're like, this is a huge cycling market, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But there are certain laws, certain regulations in Spain that make it difficult to run an event to their brand standard. And that brand standard is the business. And I think that that's really rad. You can run a business like that nowadays because of the global nature of business, right? They can say, you know what? Yeah, Spain is a big market, but you know what else is? Germany. So let's go there. Yeah, They've done that and they've stayed true. People in Europe are willing to travel for these races like you. Oh, yeah. So it's it's not a big deal if it's not in your hometown. No. Spain, Italy, France, this is to cycling what Texas is to high school football. Everybody's on a bike here. One of the things that really stuck out to me about this interview was Uli's answer to, and it's not a business thing, it's a cycling thing, but he was saying, hey, look, if you want to cycle, you need skinny, narrow, twisty roads that go up and down hills. And you pretty much can only find those in, in Europe. They don't exist in too, too many other places. You know one other place they do exist, boss man? Pennsylvania? 
Chiang Mai, Thailand. Going to be there in November if anybody wants to ride a bike. Speaking of racing, you're headed off right now, pretty much. Right now. I'm actually, right now, my legs are freshly shaven. My pack is packed and I'm ready to go race, buddy. I'm so excited. That's awesome, man. Well, I wish you the best of luck. And, you know, the good news is they're not testing for caffeine yet. So, <laughs> little known secret in the cycling community. It's like you get tested for all these things, but not caffeine yet. And everybody's doing it. So, everybody's doing it. Big thanks to Uli and Lydia for founding GFNY and for putting on great events sharing their ideas with us today. Thanks to Uli for dropping by to be interviewed. We're going to post all the links and show notes to this one at tropicalmba.com slash GFNY. We'll see you next Thursday morning. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.